Excerpts from the Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. Our part of District 12, nicknamed the Seam, is usually crawling with coal miners heading out to the morning shift at this hour. Men and women with hunched shoulders, swollen knuckles, many who have long since stopped trying to scrub the coal dust out of their broken nails, the lines of their sunken faces. But today the black cinder streets are empty. Shutters on the square, uh, gray houses are closed. The reaping isn't until two. Many will sleep, if you can. Our house is almost at the edge of the seam. I only have to pass a few gates to reach the scruffy field called the meadow. Separating the meadow from the woods, in fact, enclosing all of District 12, is a high chain-link fence topped with barbed wire loops. In theory, it's supposed to be electrified 24 hours a day as a deterrent to the predators that live in the woods. <clears throat> Packs of wild dogs, lone cougars, bears that used to threaten our streets. But since we're lucky to get two or three hours of electricity in the evenings, it's usually safe to touch. When I was younger, I scared my mother to death, the things I would blurt out about District 12, about the people who rule our country, Panem, from the far-off city called the Capitol. Eventually, I understood that this would only lead us to more trouble. So I learned to hold my tongue and to turn my features into an indifferent mask so that no one could ever read my thoughts. Do my work quietly in school. Make only polite small talk in the public market. Discuss little more than trades in the hub, which is a black market where I make most of my money. Even at home, where I'm less pleasant, I avoid discussing tricky topics. Prim might begin to repeat my words, and then where would we be? Just as the town clock strikes two, the mayor steps up to the podium and begins to read. It's the same story every year. He tells of the history of Panem the countries that rose up out of the ashes of a place that once was called North America. He lists the disasters, the droughts, the storms, the fires, the encroaching seas that swallowed up so much of the land, the brutal war for what little sustenance remained. The result was Panem, a shining capital ranked by 13 districts, which brought peace and prosperity to its citizens. Then came the Dark Ages, the uprising of the districts against the Capitol. Twelve were defeated, the 13th obliterated. The Treaty of Treason gave us a new laws to guarantee peace, and as our yearly reminder, that the dark days must never be repeated. It gave us the Hunger Games. 
The rules of the Hunger Games are simple. In punishment for the uprising, each of the 12 districts must provide one girl and one boy called tributes to participate. The 24 tributes will be imprisoned in a vast outdoor arena that could hold anything from a burning desert to a frozen wasteland. Over a period of several weeks, the competitors must fight to the death. The last tribute standing wins. In her best-selling Hunger Games trilogy, Suzanne Collins imagines a world of the future, a dystopian reality in which North American society has been replaced with a world where workers toil for the good of a small elite, threatened with the use of force and given hope only by the small chance of winning a deadly game. What makes the world of the Hunger Games so eerie is that we can see remnants of our present-day reality in it, enough remnants that it scares us to think that maybe, just maybe, we are headed down a path towards totalitarianism. And while The Hunger Games is a work of fiction and of fantasy, we would do well to understand the signs in our current society that make Suzanne Collins's disturbing imagination all too real. So I'd like to today focus on the most fantastic and unreal part of the book, the Hunger Games themselves. In the Hunger Games books, teenagers from each of the oppressed districts are forced to fight to the death in a reality television show broadcast throughout the nation. Their gruesome deaths are entertainment for the elite people in the capital, and the entire nation is forced to tune in and watch their children die. Now, that's certainly not reality, is it? What is the reality of our situation today? We have become a society entertained by the plight of those less fortunate than we are. Now, we don't make them kill each other on television yet. We do make them debase each other in public for money. How many of you have ever seen a reality television show? If you have, you know what I'm talking about. And who's attracted to being on those shows? People with no money, people with no job, people with no self-esteem. We take advantage of them willingly and put them on display with all their quirks and foibles for the entire nation to laugh at. But that's just the surface comparison. Deeper down, we understand that we are also a society in this day and age devoted to what Chris Hedges author of the book, The Death of the Liberal Class, calls Permanent War. Here's what Chris Hedges writes. Since the end of World War I, the United States has devoted staggering resources and money to battling real and imagined enemies. It turned the engines of the state over to a massive war and security apparatus. These battles, which have created an Orwellian state illusion of permanent war, neutered all opposition to corporate power and the tepid reforms of the liberal class. The liberal class, fearful of being branded as soft or unpatriotic, willingly joined the state's campaign to crush popular and radical movements in the name of national security. Permanent war, Chris Hedges 
writes, is the most effective mechanism used by the power elite to stifle reform and muzzle dissent. We exist in a state of permanent war. Our wars require not only a steady stream of money, money taken from our paychecks and pockets and diverted from better causes like health care, our social safety net, education, and infrastructure. They require not only that steady stream of money, but also a steady stream of young, able-bodied people willing to die for our country. And all too often, those young, able-bodied people do, in fact, die for our country. Now, I'm not suggesting that the death of U.S. troops is entertainment for anyone in this country. But I think it does us well to understand that their death serves someone's purpose. There are people and entities in our society today who, who are profiting from the permanent war that we find ourselves in, who are profiting from the fear that makes American society support that state of permanent war. Their death serves to reinforce a status quo that benefits a small elite. Their death helps quiet dissent. It helps us dismiss the Occupy movement as fringe elements. It helps us rationalize police brutality toward nonviolent protesters. Lest we appear unpatriotic, those of us who are morally offended by the deaths of U.S. soldiers in wars fought in our name stay eerily silent about what it is that is fueling those wars. We cannot afford to remain silent about the fact that corporations are profiting from this state of permanent war. And those same corporations have wrested control of both our political and economic systems. As Chris Hedges writes, corporate power purports to honor electoral politics, freedom, and the Constitution. But these corporate forces so corrupt and manipulate power as to make democracy impossible. Just look at the last century of Supreme Court decisions that have left us with two lasting legacies in this regard. First, that corporations are themselves people. And second, that money is speech. If those two things are true, then where and how corporations spend their money to influence our political system has the very same constitutional guarantees that our nation's founders gave to the disenfranchised voicing political dissent. I cannot believe that those positions can in any way be morally justified. Our voices in the political system are voices in the political system. The voices of individual people in the political system have been drowned out by endless streams of secret money from a small handful of people. Our participation in the democratic process is too often relegated to casting votes for which singer we like best on American Idol or which things we will press the like button on in Facebook. Just how far are we from staging battles to the death and placing bets on them for our entertainment. Our nation is at a crucial point in our moral and ethical development as a society. We have reached a point where the interests of a small number outweighs the interests of the many, where the interests of those who have plenty outweighs the interests of those who have nothing. 
In his life of ministry, Jesus of Nazareth again and again returned to the theme of economic inequality in his society, letting his contemporaries know that the religion he espoused called on each of us to do our part for those without. The writer of the gospel book we call Matthew attributes a story to Jesus in which he was telling of the judgment day, a day to come when God would choose those who were worthy of inheriting his kingdom. Those blessed by God were those who fed the hungry, who gave drink to the thirsty, who welcomed the stranger, clothed the naked, and visited the prisoner. Those blessed by God, Jesus said, would do for the least of these who are members of God's family as if they were doing it for God directly. And so I ask, where is that sentiment in our modern-day political system? Just this week, as I was preparing to write this sermon, I read an article about a woman in California who was forced to quit her full-time job a full-time job that is not easy to come by in today's economy because she was not earning enough in her full-time job to pay for her four-year-old son's daycare. Until recently, the state of California helped out Clarissa Douthard with the $1,000 a month bill that she had for Xavier's daycare. But budget cutbacks in California, similar to the ones happening all over our country, led to that program being cut. In June, I had to quit my full-time job, she said. I was on the brink of being able to pay the full cost, just one more raise away from being completely self-sufficient. And now she's unemployed again. That problem is not just in California. It's all over the nation. New York City's proposed budget for the coming year cuts daycare for almost 16,000 children and after-school care for another 32,000 children. 75,000 children are on a waiting list for child care assistance in the state of Florida. Half of the families, fully half of the families currently getting child care assistance in Maine face losing it if the budget that their governor has submitted passes. Where, I ask, is the moral outcry over how we are treating the least of these in the family of humanity? Where is the moral outcry over where our tax dollars are actually being spent to bail out huge banks, to fight immoral wars, to give tax breaks to oil companies? The Reverend Peter Morales, UUA president, in a Huffington Post essay entitled Unemployment as a Spiritual Issue, has this to say. He writes, In the current strident debate about unemployment, We hear politicians and pundits argue about economic policy. The talk is about deficits and economic stimuli and tax policy. All of this rancor, he continues, obscures a more fundamental issue. We choose the kind of society in which we live. The choices we make are moral choices. And as moral choices, they are ultimately based on our central religious values. We tend to treat changes in the economy as if they were like the weather, natural phenomena governed by forces beyond our control. Nothing could be further from the truth. We have chosen to live in a society with high unemployment and with income distribution that is becoming medieval. A tiny percentage of Americans owns most of its wealth. 
Meanwhile, millions of willing and able people are without work. This did not just happen. We created this situation. He continues, An economics professor once taught me that if you focus on money, you will never understand economics. What he meant was that the economy is a huge system of human relationships in which people produce and exchange things and services. Money is not the economy. Money is a way of keeping score. Our economy is a huge system of human relationships. This is absolutely true. Therefore, we must bring the same spiritual and moral values that we bring to human relationships to bear on our economy. We must create an economy based in compassion. We must create an economy based in equality. We must create an economy based in peace, in love rather than in fear, in abundance rather than in scarcity, in mutuality rather than in coercion. We must insist on a society where people matter more than corporations and where corporations are not themselves people. We must insist on a society where political power is checked and shared and not allowed to run amok through super PACs and secret corporate donations. We must insist on a society where the wealthy and the poor have equal access and equal voice, where money is not speech, where corporations are not people. We must raise our moral voices loudly, my friends. We might not find ourselves playing the hunger games if we do not, but to create the future that we want to see, we simply cannot remain silent. We just can't afford to. May it be so.